And it is obituary time. I'm going to read the first one here. It's about Rebecca Sue Blyzek of Denton. Rebecca Sue Becky Blyzek was born on December 12, 1987 in Dallas, Texas to Mark Blyzek and Cynthia Watts Blyzek and passed away unexpectedly at her home in Denton on May 22nd in Denton, Texas at the age of 35 years. Rebecca lived her young life alongside her brother, Mikey, in Garland, Texas. Family moved to Lake Dallas, Texas in 1995, and after her mother's passing, she and her father relocated a short distance away to Corinth, Texas, where she attended Lake Dallas High School. During those years, Becky moved to be with her friends, enjoying the latest music, boating with her dad, long trips to Iowa to see her cousins, or just being alone with her cat, Buddy. After high school, Becky held several jobs, including restaurant management and assistant to a chiropractor. It was while working at the restaurant she met Zach, her life partner, and then moved to Denton, Texas to start their life together. There truly was no place she would rather be than at home with Zach and their dog, Rooster, and her cat, Tom. Although strong-willed and stubborn at times, Becky was a beautiful, shy, and gentle soul with her own unique sense of style. She knew that she was dearly loved by all of us she touched, and she will be with us forever in our hearts. Becky is preceded in death by her mother, Cynthia Watts Blyzek. Becky is survived by her life partner, Zach Rainey, by her father, Mark Blyzek, and by her brother, Michael Kelso, by her grandmother, Amarita Blyzek, by many aunts, uncles, cousins, by the Rainey family, and by her pets, Rooster and Tom. Services will be held at Hamilton's Funeral Home near Highland Memory Gardens Funeral Home in Des Moines, with burial at Pine Hill Cemetery, dates and times currently pending, in lieu of flowers, the family asks that you consider making a donation to your local animal shelter and consider adopting a dog or cat. I think you should adopt four cats, Doug. Okay. No? No cats. Edward Douglas Killen Sr., Des Moines. The family of Edward Killen Sr. bid a sad farewell to their loving grandfather, father, great-grandfather, friend, and biggest fan. Ed dedicated his life to his children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. The family's hallmark phrase was, Grandpa's house. It's kind of like having a little party. Ed is remembered by several other catchphrases. Whenever the family went out to dinner, he would say, there's nothing to this cooking, and everybody eat up. I don't want anyone leaving hungry. Ed attended St. Peter's Catholic School in Des Moines during his elementary and junior high school years. He graduated from Dowling in 1956. He went on to serve in the U.S. Navy after the late or in the late 50s. Ed joined the Des Moines Police Department in 1962. After seven years, he moved over to the Des Moines Fire Department. He retired from that department June 16, 1996. He faithfully served the city of Des Moines for 34 years. Even after his retirement, the current firefighter still remembered him. Every time they drove by his house on their way to a call, they would honk the horn. And each time, without fail, Ed would say, go get them, boys. Ed has always said both departments were two of the best in the country. 
His leisure time was spent running, playing racquetball, tennis, co-ed softball with his children, and challenging his grandchildren to a race or game of around the world. His running took him to the pre-Olympic trials in the 10,000 meter, and he was chosen <coughs> excuse me, to run for the U.S. Navy track team. There is no doubt that Ed's enthusiasm for sports spilled over into the lives of his children and grandchildren. He was by far their biggest cheerleader and fan. He loved to take in any sporting event that his family entered. He also had a lifelong passion of raising and caring for all kinds of dogs. He showed German shepherds and won many awards. Survived by his three children, six grandchildren, and six great-grandchildren. Visitation will be 10 a.m. Tuesday, June 6, funeral service to follow at Hamilton's Funeral Home on uh, 605 Lyon Street. Burial will follow that at the Iowans Veterans Cemetery in Van Meter. Memorial contributions directed to Shriners Hospitals for Children or the Animal Rescue League. Ed's family thanks him for his dedication to their safety, happiness, and success. He's made them proud, and they hope they did the same for him. Now run, Dad, into the arms of Jesus. Next is Therese Bradley, Teresa Terry Jean Brady, I'm sorry, Brady, not Bradley, age 78 of Des Moines, joined her heavenly family, passing away peacefully at home March 10, 2023. Born May 17, 1944 in Chicago to Marjorie and Charles Roth. Grew up in Dixon, Illinois, and eventually in Des Moines. Graduated from North High School in 1962. Studied accounting at the LaSalle Extension University. In 1966, she met Donald Brady. Together, they were united in marriage in 1967. To their union were born two sons, Mark and Michael. She worked much of her life as a bookkeeper. Retiring from Agrigrain Marketing, Agrigrain Marketing rather, in 2004. Terry was an avid philatelist, which is a stamp collector, her entire life. She even operated her own mail order stamp business with her husband Don for several years. Her varied interest in, interests included selling Avon, needlepoint, and latch hook art, and participating in an investment club. Terry was a devoted mother eagerly participating in her son's many years of youth bowling activities, which took the family all around the Midwest. She also discovered a love for all things Disney, which led to numerous trips to Disney World, and passing on that love for Disney to her grandchildren and children. Following a trip to Switzerland in 1991, she developed a passion for overseas travel, which continued until her health would no longer allow it. She delighted in researching and eventually visiting places like Switzerland, Germany, Austria, Italy, France, the Netherlands, Scotland, and Thailand. Attending her grandchildren's many events over the years was a joy to Terry, as was having them over for a slumber party with Grandma. She will always be remembered for her amusing laugh, sweet nature, and loving kindness. Following a debilitating stroke several years ago, Terry fought hard to walk again and moved back home where she wanted to be, where she could live out the remainder of her years. During that time, she had fun rediscovering her love of game shows and cheering on her favorite college basketball and football teams. Visitation, Saturday, June 3rd, from 9 to 11 at Aldersgate United Methodist Church in Urbandale. 
A celebration of life service will follow at 11 a.m. at the same location. There will be a brief interment at Chapel Hill Gardens at Merle Hay Funeral Home. Following, a luncheon will be provided following that interment. Special thanks um, goes out to Right at Home for their loving care, allowing Terry to remain in her home. Memorial contributions, Shriners Hospitals for Children. Moving on to sports. I'm going to read a couple here on the front section. There's a picture here right there. It's got the Iowa. It says, Iowa baseball players clean out the dugout as Hawkeye fans start exiting the ballpark after Sunday's championship game of the Big Ten Tournament in Omaha. And Maryland won 4-0. And it's the nice picture of them doing that, and they're not happy to do that, I'm sure. And it's written by... Two homers cost Iowa in final versus Maryland by Dargan Southard, the Moines Register USA Today Network. Dateline is, I want to say Obama, I mean Omaha. A black and gold wave engulfed the first baseline at Charles Schwab Field Sunday afternoon, hoping to inject more life into an Iowa baseball tournament run already full of energy and emotion. For the first time since 2016, Hawkeyes could lean on the geographical benefit Omaha provides in a championship setting. Maryland was having none of it. The Terrapins made the first dent in dueling bullpen games, jumping on the Hawkeyes for two fifth-inning home runs before tacking on late insurance that put the final nail in Iowa's Omaha stay. Top-seeded Maryland finished off the Hawkeyes 4-0. to zero to pair its regular season championship with a Big Ten tournament title. The disappointing thing for me is just so many Hawk fans came out for us today. The sport, the support was just tremendous, Iowa baseball coach Rick Heller said. To find, to not find a way to get it done is painful. It just is. For as much celebratory potential as Sunday's afternoon affair had, Iowa, 42-42-14, and 14, had to balance all decisions, particularly pitching ones, with an eye on next week's regional games. It's an interesting position the Hawkeyes haven't been in much, with an at-large NCAA tournament bid wrapped up and meaningful baseball still to play. But with Maryland, 41-19, in the same boat on the other side, it felt like an even playing field as far as availability goes. The problem with bullpen games, though, is the precarious nature in which they're constructed. One off-arm and the whole thing can fall apart in a moment's notice. All the quality mound work that came before the stumble can get quickly washed away. The Hawkeyes got exactly what they needed out of starter Marcus Morgan, who was again throwing on short rest for the third consecutive inning, outing. To clean frames on 28 pitches... Two clean frames on 28 pitches was a perfect execution after Tuesday's start. Morgan should be ready to roll whenever Iowa trots him out next weekend. The goal was to come out and set the tone, Morgan said, with whatever number of pitches they were going to let me go. From there, though, things got much rockier. Aaron Savory didn't have it in his first appearance since May 13, forcing Jack Whitlock to clean up his third inning mess with the bases loaded. Whitlock wiggled out of the jam, just as he did Tuesday against Michigan, but problems were on the horizon. 
This Maryland team has hopped or bopped all season at an incredible rate, and it did so again on two hanging off-speed pitches in the fifth. Kevin Keister took the first hack, crushing a two-run homer deep in the left field bullpen as Maryland relievers jumped for joy. Three batters later, Nick LaRusso clubbed his 23rd homer this season off a left field railing for a 3-0 Maryland advantage. It was tough Obama, <laughs> Omaha, parting gift for Whitlock, who's been Iowa's most trusted reliever down the stretch while working out of massive spots. Maryland tacked on a two-out, sixth-inning run off reliever Luke Llewellyn to pad the cushion. Hawkeyes had offensive opportunities throughout, putting at least one runner in scoring position in each of the first four frames. But the clutch uh, knocks that defined Iowa's early Omaha action vanished on this day. This team has always responded well to losses, said left fielder Sam Peterson, who was named to the all-tournament team, along with Kyle Huxdorf, Michael Seegers, and Ty Langberg. I think we're one of the best teams in the country. When we show it, there's nothing to worry about. Regardless of Sunday's outcome, this week has been a rousing success for the Hawkeyes. Iowa conquered quality pitching, flipped games around with timely offense, and thrived in a tournament setting. All vital traits that will need to show up in abundance wherever the Hawkeyes get sent. Plenty of positivity can be carried into next week's or next weekend's regional, where Iowa will likely assume the underdog mantra that seems to buoy the Hawkeyes often. Heller said, I believe that this team can be back here in a couple weeks for the College World Series if we go play like we're capable. End quote. That's what's the message that's what the message is going to be, he went on. And here's an article on the Indy 500 uh, written on the front page. It's written by uh, Dave Scretta. New Garden finally bask in Indy 500. And the dateline is Indianapolis. In the slow buildup to the Indianapolis 500, Joseph Newgarden talked openly about having to put on a brave face when he would arrive at Indianapolis Motor Speedway and how so many failures in the race that mattered most had weighed on him. On Monday, Newgarden showed up wearing a smile. He had passed Marcus Erickson in a last lap sprint to the finish a day earlier and was back at the mostly empty speedway for all the spoils. He chatted with team owner Rogers Penske, who got his 19th victory, but first since purchasing the track, and posed for countless photos on the yard of bricks. William Behrens, the sculptor who will craft New Garden's face on the Borg Warner Trophy, took reference images, and New Garden later sat in a chair and fiddled with the Indy 500 ring on his finger. Each year gets tougher when you run it run it 12 years in a row. It just gets harder and harder to leave here with a broken heart, Newgarten told the Associated Press. You know, everybody that doesn't win the race, I believe, ends up with a broken heart, or at least I have left every year just shattered, and you got to build yourself back up really quickly and keep going. So, you know, I just removed it from the equation that it had to happen. He continued, it's because maybe if it doesn't, that's okay. 
my career wouldn't be a failure. I don't feel that way, and I don't think anyone else should, end quote. Still, there was a palpable sense of relief when Newgarden took the checkers, stopped his when Newgarden took the checkers, stopped his car at the flag stand, and found a hole in the fence. He'd noticed it there years ago and crawled under to celebrate with fans on the front stretch. It wasn't only Newgarden who had been uh, putting up, putting on a brave face for the Indy 500. It was in entirety of Team Penske, the gold standard in IndyCar. Uh, but who's... Turn the page here a second. Who's... 18, a him now 19, triumphs and the greatest spectacle in racing began to seem long ago. In the four years since Simon uh, Paginal reached victory lane on a dominant day for Team Penske, with Newgarden and Will Power joining him in the top five, there had been a pandemic that shut down the world. Penske had closed on his purchase of IndyCar and the Speedway, and teammates had come and gone from the organization. Newgarden has been a mainstay, though. Ever since joining Power to become a cornerstone of the team in 2017, when he arrived from Ed Carpenter Racing and promptly won the series title, Newgarden added another IndyCar title two years later. Yet the Indianapolis 500 had eluded him. He finished eighth in 2018, fourth the next year, and fifth in 2020, when the COVID-19 pandemic forced the race to be run in August. The last two years, Newgarden failed to finish in the top 10, joining the rest of Team Penske and struggling on race day. I'm still in the camp that the championship is tougher, Newgarden admitted after dousing himself in milk and kissing the yard of bricks a Sunday. But I don't know how you compare the two. You're looking at one standalone versus a championship, and putting a championship together is... I think, very, very difficult. You really see the best rise to the top. You see the best team, the best pit stop performance. Consistently, it adds up over a year, and it's very difficult to do that. Newgarden added, quote, This is the single most difficult race in the world to win. I'll stand by that. There's no doubt, end quote. That he even had a chance to win Sunday would have been surprising a week earlier when Newgarden struggled again with qualifying. He was solidly in the field but stuck near the middle of the pack, so he made a bold decision to take his time off the board and go again. The risky gamble wound up being a wash. Newgarden still started in the middle of the sixth row. He had a quiet race, too steering clear of trouble over a mostly forgettable first 180 laps. The drama began with a red flag a few laps later. The first of that IndyCar threw before the finish, but it was the last one that spurred controversy. Erickson was leading the race and thought he had won when the yellow flag was flying with two laps to go. Instead, the cars were pulled down pit, row, pit road and brought to a stop to set up a one-lap shootout. Erickson said later he disagreed with the decision, calling it unsafe to take green and white flags simultaneously on the first lap out of the pits. Newgarden was just thankful for a chance, something that had eluded Scott Dixon and many others who were 
forced to ride around under caution and watch someone else take checkered flags. Newgarden said, I'm happy they did it to give a good finish. One that had the crowd of more than 300,000 on its feet. Erickson held the lead through turns one and two, watched Newgarden slip around him on the backstretch, then made a bold snake-like move out of turn four to hold him off the win. As he was finding a hole in the fence to celebrate with fans, Penske and the rest of the team was celebrating. Over near his pit box, Newgarten's wife, Ashley, crouched down with her face in her hands and cried. She's probably got the toughest job in our family, not just because she looks out for everything else and helps make my world go round, but she sees the negative impact. She sees the heartbreak more than anyone else. She knows what that's like, he said. I'm just happy we were able to finally win it. She knows that too. And I'm jumping over to the sports extra and continuing in the indie thing because it's such a huge annual event. This article is in the pits. Indy 500's ending creates controversy. Um, Jenna Fryer wrote this piece, Dateline Indianapolis. It's called The Greatest Spectacle in Racing because the Indy 500 is supposed to be one of the most dramatic and difficult races in the world. Sure, it's an automobile race. But it's also very much entertainment, even if Marcus Erickson vehemently disagrees. The controversial ending to the 107th running of the Indy 500 gave Josef Newgarden the win, and Newgarden drives for Roger Penske, who owns the race and Indianapolis Motor Speedway. So when IndyCar went to an unprecedented one-lap shootout that allowed Newgarden to win the race, well, Erickson was furious and conspiracy theorists went wild. Erickson, looking to become the first back-to-back -back Indy 500 winner in 21 years, was leading when a crash brought out the yellow flag. IndyCar ran three laps under caution before deciding to throw the red flag for an Indy 500 record third time, stopping the race for cleanup for the third time in the final 16 laps. Erickson wanted the race to end under yellow, with the Swede declared the winner and was furious when IndyCar's decision to set up a 2.5-mile sprint around the track to decide the biggest race in the world. And if IndyCar was going to throw the red, then Erickson felt the series wasted two laps under caution, which created the situation in which the cars came off pit road to take the green and white flags at the same time. Some found it all a bit suspicious. Newgarden, after all, is a featured star in 100 Days to Indy, which is a docudrama about the race that's produced by Penske Entertainment. And he won a race at the track owned by his boss because of a ruling by race control never before seen quite the way it was executed until Sunday. Newgarden dismissed his win being scripted or aided by the owner of Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Quote, where does it stop? When is it too comfortable a scenario for Roger owning the track and Roger's car winning the race, Newgarden told the Associated Press Monday. I don't think he will ever win that battle. Someone is going to find reason whenever to bring us down. I have so much respect for Roger, Newgarden continued. I don't think there's anyone in the world who cares more about integrity than Roger Penske. Penske said after the race, that he's trying to divorce himself as the Speedway and IndyCar owner from competition decisions 
that affect the series and his race team. He spent decades on the timing stand for dozens of winning Penske drivers. But since purchasing the Speedway and series at the start of 2020, he shifted his focus from competition. Yet he noted that under Penske leadership, tradition has shifted away from purity to trying to ensure the 300,000 plus spectators see a race to the checkered flag. Quote, I had nothing to do with the red flag, obviously, Penske said. We have a group that is certainly the officials of the track, and to me, we've said this before, I think all of you had said we want to see a checkered flag, not a yellow flag. In 107 years, the Indy 500 has ended under the yellow flag or red flag for rain only 19 times, but 10 of those endings have been since 2000. Since Penske's first 500 as owner in 2020, both last year and this year have had late red flags to set up a race to the finish. There was no red flag in 2020 when the race ended under caution and was won by Takuma Sato as helpless Scott Dixon had to stay in line with no chance to even try for a late pass for the win. Dixon, a six-time IndyCar season champion, but only one-time winner of the 500, said this week that the default, the defeats that end under caution are the ones that bother him the most. IndyCar said in 2020, there were not enough laps remaining to stop the race for a final restart following a crash with five to go. Four years later, the series now thinks that two laps is enough for a red flag. Tony Kanan, K-A-N-A-A-N, one in 2013 under caution, and even though he's one of the most popular winners in track history, he recognized the same, or excuse me, he recognized that some found the finish of his crowning achievement anticlimactic. Kenan or Kanan on Sunday sympathized with Erickson and third place finisher Santino Ferrucci because of the odd one lap shootout but he insisted it was best for the fans. Quote, guys like Santino and Marcus are mad. Then you have Joseph that's happy. But we need to think about the show, he said. The biggest complaint we have every year is that we should not finish a race under the yellow. That's going to hurt someone. Actually, 33 guys are pissed right now, and one guy is happy, and that's the reality. Could they have called the red earlier? Yes. Could have, should have, would have. But we ended under green, and that's what the fans kept asking every time. I won under yellow, and everybody hated it at some point. Erickson is angry, and rightfully so, but he shouldn't be surprised that IndyCar wanted the race to end under the green flag. His complaint actually should be how many laps were wasted before deciding to stop the race and a lack of standard guidelines from the series as to how red flags will be applied universally going forward. Moving away from sports, uh, we're going to the, I'm going to the Nation and World Extra, page 8, uh, page eight NN, and it's an uh, article entitled Texas AG's Trial to Begin No Later Than August 28th. It's written by Paul J. Weber and Acacia Coronado of the Associated Press. The dateline is Austin, Texas. A historic impeachment trial in Texas to determine whether Republican Attorney General Ken Paxton should be permanently removed from office will begin no later than August in the state Senate, 
or the jury that would determine his future could include his wife, Senator Angela Paxton. Setting a schedule was one of the last orders of business lawmakers took Monday during a sluggish end to this year's legislative session in Texas, where the impeachment laid bare fractures in America's biggest red state beyond whether Republicans will oust one of the GOP's conservative legal stars. It drags Republicans, who for years have pushed fast-changing Texas to the right, into a summer of unfinished business and soured feelings that are likely to spill into 2024's elections. As time ran out for lawmakers on Memorial Day, expectations mounted that Republican Governor Greg Abbott would quickly call a special session and order them back to work. I would not pack your bags just yet, Republican House Speaker Dade Phelan Phelan told lawmakers before adjourning. At the center of the conflict is Paxton, who the GOP-controlled House overwhelmingly impeached this weekend on charges that include bribery and misuse of office following nearly a decade of scandal and criminal accusations that have dogged the state's top lawyer. He is suspended from office pending trial in the state Senate which set a start date of no later than August 28th. Underlining how Paxton's impeachment has upended the Texas Capitol, the session ended with a dozen House lawmakers walking across the building and delivering the articles of impeachment to the Senate, where there are 31 senators who could act as jurors. In a complicating twist, one of them is Senator Paxton, who has not spoken publicly publicly since her husband's impeachment or said whether she will recuse herself from the proceedings. She declined comment Monday when approached by the Associated Press outside the Senate chamber. The chairman of the House investigation, Republican State Representative Andrew Murr, also declined to comment on whether it would be appropriate for Senator Paxton to participate. We will manage this process with the weight and reverence it deserves and requires, Murr said. Impeachment made for a dramatic finale to the 140-day legislative session in Texas, where Republicans started the year with large GOP majorities following a dominant midterm election, a historic $33 billion-plus billion surplus, and a governor seen as a possible 2024 presidential contender. But instead of a smooth victory lap this spring, Republicans spent months clashing with each other over promises to cut property taxes and provide vouchers to public school students and delivered neither before time was up. Both were priorities of Abbott, who was silent as the session ended. He could also appoint an interim attorney general, but has made no public comment about Paxton since impeachment proceedings began last week. Among those who have rushed to Paxton's defense, are activists on the GOP's hard right and former President Donald Trump, the leading contender for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination, who over the weekend posted on his social media platform that the governor was missing in action. And staying with Nation and World Extra, I'm going to page five, double N. Kind of exciting. The UAE announces groundbreaking mission to explore asteroid belts. Dateline Dubai. The United Arab Emirates unveiled plans Monday to send a spaceship to explore the solar system's main asteroid belt. The latest space project, 
by the oil-rich nation after it launched the successful Hope spacecraft to Mars in 2020. Dubbed the Arab, or excuse me, dubbed the Emirates Mission to the Asteroid Belt, the project aims to develop a spacecraft in the coming years and then launch it in 2028 to study various asteroids. Quote, This mission is a follow-up and a follow-on the Mars mission where it was the first mission to Mars from the region, said Program Director of the Emirates Mission to the Asteroid Belt. We're creating the same thing with this mission. That is, the first mission ever to explore these seven asteroids in specific, and the first of its kind when it's looked at from the Grand Tour aspect. The UAE became the first Arab country and the second country ever to successfully enter Mars orbit on its first try when its Hope probe reached the Red Planet in February of 21. The craft's goals include providing the first complete picture of the Martian atmosphere and its layers and helping answer key questions about that planet's climate and composition. If successful, the newly announced spacecraft will soar at speeds reaching 20,500 miles an hour on a seven-year journey to explore the six asteroids. That's kind of how fast I go to. It will culminate in the development of a landing craft onto a seventh rare red asteroid the scientists say may hold insight into the building blocks of life on Earth. Organic compounds like water are crucial constituents of life and have been found on some asteroids, potentially delivered through collisions with other organic-rich bodies or via the creation of complex organic molecules in space. Investigating the origins of these compounds, along with the possible presence of water on red asteroids, could shed light on the origin of Earth's water, thereby offering valuable insights into the genesis of life on our planet. The endeavor is a significant milestone for the burgeoning UAE Space Agency, which was established in 2014, as it follows up on its success in sending the AMAL, or HOPE, probe to Mars. The new journey would span a distance over 10 times greater than the Mars mission. The explorer is named MBR, after Dubai's ruler, Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum, who also serves as the vice president and prime minister of the hereditarily ruled UAE. It will first make its way toward Venus, where the planet's gravitational pull will slingshot it back past Earth and then on to Mars. <clears throat> the craft will eventually reach the asteroid belt, flying as close as 93 miles to the celestial boulders and covering a total distance of around 3 billion miles. In October of 2034, the craft is expected to make its final thrust to the seventh and last asteroid named Justitia before deploying a lander over a year later. Justitia, believed to be one of only two known red asteroids, is thought to potentially have a surface laden with organic substances. It's one of the two reddest objects in the asteroid belt, and scientists don't really understand why it's so red, said a space science researcher at the UAE Space Agency. There are theories about it being originally from the Kuiper belt and where there's much more red objects there. So that's one thing that we can study because it has the potential for it to be water-rich as well. The MBR Explorer will deploy a landing craft 
to study the surface of Justitia that will be fully developed by private UAE startup companies. It may lay the groundwork for possible future resource extraction from asteroids to eventually support extended human missions in space, and maybe even the UAE's ambitious goal of building a colony on Mars by 2117. We have identified different key areas that we want startups in the private sector to be a part of, and we will engage with them through that, said Al-Awadi. We understand that the knowledge we have in the UAE is still being built. We will provide these startups with the knowledge that they need. All right, we're going to stay on that page of the Nation and World Extra. We're going to move to an article, North Korea to launch its first military spy satellite. Kind of still staying in space here. And it's uh, Dateline Seoul, South Korea. North Korea confirmed plans to launch its first military spy satellite in June and described such capacities as crucial for monitoring the U.S. reckless military exercises with rival South Korea. The statement came a day after North Korea notified Japanese authorities that it plans to launch the satellite sometime between May 31st and June 11, and that the event may affect waters in the Yellow Sea, East China Sea, and east of the Philippines, Luzon Island. Japanese Defense Minister Yakazu Hamada said he ordered Japan's self-defense forces to shoot down the satellite or debris if any entered Japanese territory. In comments published on state media, senior North Korean military official Rai Hyung Cho berated the U.S. South Korean military exercises, which Pyongyang has long described as invasion um, rehearsals. He said North Korea considers space-based reconnaissance as indispensable to monitor in real time the dangerous military acts of the U.S. and its vassal forces which he says are openly revealing their reckless ambition for aggression, end quote. Since the start of 2022, North Korea has test-fired about 100 missiles, including intercontinental ballistic missiles designed to reach the U.S. mainland and a slew of launches it described as simulated nuclear attacks on targets in South Korea. North Korea has said it's Intensified testing activity is meant to counter its rivals' joint military exercises as it continues to use those drills as a pretext to advance its arsenal of nuclear-powered, or rather nuclear-capable weapons. Last week, the South Korean and U.S. militaries conducted large-scale live-fire drills near the border with North Korea as the first of five rounds of exercises marking 70 years since the establishment of their alliance. Rhee said that expanding U.S.-South Korean military exercises, combined with stated U.S. plans to send nuclear-capable submarines to dock in South Korea, and the increased activities of U.S. reconnaissance aircraft in the region underline a sinister intention to prepare for preemptive military action against the North. While Washington and Seoul describe their regular military exercises as defensive, 
They have expended their training since 2022 to cope with the Norse evolving threats. North Korea's satellite launch would use long-range missile technology banned. Find my place here. Banned by past UN Security Council resolutions, although previous missile and rockets tests have demonstrated North Korea's ability to deliver a satellite into space. Spy satellites are among an array of high-tech weapons systems. North Korea leader Kim Jong uh, Kim Jong Un has publicly vowed to develop. And we'll go to something a little bit lighter. On a personal note, I've been a big fan of HBO's Succession, and the uh, finale was this weekend. This article: Fans react to end of Emmy-winning Succession with the heart. Or with the end of the critically acclaimed drama's fourth and final season, dedicated fans of Succession now know the answer to the series' central question. Which of the Murdoch-esque Roy family siblings will prevail? Oh, and for those who haven't yet watched, here's the spoiler alert. The whopping 88-minute finale on Sunday evening, which concluded HBO's hit series chronicling a billionaire media mogul and his children, his children struggles, rather, to take over the family company called Waystar Royco, it left viewers reeling because none of the Roy siblings won. In the episode, Shiv Roy took one final turn against her brother Kendall, blowing up his plans to keep their late father's company and become CEO by voting to let their media empire be acquired by a Swedish tech giant called Gojo. The series-long tussles between the three key siblings turned into an actual tussle as a screaming match descended into a wrestling match with a nihilistic Roman declaring the trio nothing in the end. And Shiv's no longer estranged husband and soon-to-be baby daddy Tom Wamsgans triumphed as the new chief executive with cousin Greg by his side despite the last-minute treachery. In the finale's closing shot, Kendall stares in despair toward the water, and the credits roll. Quote, I put my marker down on Tom and Greg, said Jennifer Gould, who is an Oregon-based trust and estates lawyer, minutes after she finished watching the show. And I was right, she said. Succession has always been about the membership of its audience, not its size, and its popularity among the coastal media and agenda-setting groups that the show depicts and attracts means the finale will likely leave a cultural mark. Hashtag Succession was trending number one on Twitter Sunday night, followed by Shiv, Kendall, Greg, and Tom Wamsgans. The Emmy-winning show even permeated the discussion around the debt limit in Washington on Sunday when a deal was reached just hours before the finale aired. A White House official ended a call with reporters by telling them to enjoy Succession. More recent prestige TV finales are better analog for Succession than those of the network behemoths of decades past. For example, The Sopranos suddenly cut to black to the song Don't Stop Believin' in 2007, and that set the standard for both talkability and inscrutability. But succession left its own unanswered questions. Did far-right presidential candidate Jared Mencken, who the Roy's network questionably declared the winner, actually ascend to the White House? Will the Gojo deal really be finalized? Do Tom and Shiv make their marriage work? 
I'll be thinking about this for a while, Gold said. Pamela Soyne, a management consultant in New York City, and a group of friends have watched every Succession episode this season with a serious ritual, but Soyne only watched the final episode with her father, a new convert because of the Memorial Day holiday weekend in the United States. I feel like it was the closest thing to a succession if they didn't pick one of the siblings, she said. Her father, who had only watched the pilot earlier Sunday, before dozing intermittently during the finale, declared his hope for a family reunion to save their dad's company. Not so much. Where we left it is, those three kids with all their personalities, they lost control of everything due to their characters and who they are as people, she said. Conclusions to hit TV series can be hit or miss. The bloody 2013 ending of Walter White's story on Breaking Bad and Don Draper's more zen ending on Mad Men in 2015 generally satisfied their finicky fans. The 2019 conclusion of Game of Thrones, the last big finish for an HBO show, generally did not. Side note, I thought it was fine. Endings are hard to pull off, and disappointments tend to be the norm, to which the makers of Seinfeld and Lost can attest. For Kendall fans who assumed he would ultimately succeed, Sunday's finale was a shock. Quote, A lot of people will be very upset with this ending, Swain said. Siraj Nandi, a 20-year-old college student from India, said he was counting down the hours until Sunday's finale when the episode aired at 6.30 a.m. local time. Nandi won't be able to tune in for a few hours because he had to take his cat to the vet. He hopes he won't come across any spoilers in the meantime. Quote, I'm completely avoiding every social media platform until I get to watching it, he wrote in a WhatsApp message a half hour before the episode aired. Taking no chances, he said. Okay, that was uh, entertaining. And this is maybe not entertaining, but it's uh, about Belarus. And this and another one here will take us probably right up to Dear Abby. But this is Belarusian leader says no immediate plans to adopt Russian currency. I know we're all worried about that. Uh, Tallinn, Estonia, Belarus and Russia have no plans to adopt a joint currency in the near future, Belarus strongman leader announced on Monday. Speaking at a meeting with the head of Russia's central bank, Alexander Lushenko said that introducing the Russian ruble, uh, I find myself here, ruble in Belarus would not be an easy process and that the authorities of Minsk had no intention so far of doing so. When it comes to creating a single currency and so on, this is not an easy process and probably not one for today, Dushenko said on Monday during talks with bank governor uh, Elvira Nubalina. Dushenko has for decades relied on subsidies from Moscow to keep Belarus' Soviet-style economy afloat. The two countries signed agreements on the creation of a defense monetary and customs union as early as in the mid-1990s, though differences have persisted between Moscow and Minsk regarding their implementation. Russian support also helped the autocratic leader survive months of mass protest following the 2020 election that handed him a six-term in office. The opposition in the West said the vote was rigged. Last year, Moscow used Belarusian territory as a springboard to send troops and missiles into Ukraine. On Monday, Lushenko said that Belarus' economy was hit hard by the ensuing Western sanctions, but Russian bailouts 
and policies adopted by Russia's central bank have softened the blow. Even our enemies admit that Elvira Nabulina very quickly dealt with economic issues in Russia and with currency issues, especially in the context of sanctions, he said. On Monday, an independent Belarusian analyst told AP that Lukashenko's remarks marked an attempt to preserve the rem remnants of Belarusian sovereignty and protect himself from growing pressure from Kremlin. Uh, Valery uh, uh, Karbalevich said that it was important for Lu Lukashenko to show that he is in control of the situation, given the recent and growing speculation about his deteriorating health. Lukashenko is not happy with being a complete vassal to the Kremlin, and he strives to ease President uh, pressure on Minsk in order to leave room for negotiations with the West and China, he said in an interview. And before we get into uh, Dear Abby, here's a, here's a short article. assume I can find it. Here it is. Cruise ship uh, passengers terrified after trip through rough seas, Charleston, South Carolina. Cruise ship that navigated rough seas off the South Carolina coast over the Memorial Day weekend has resumed sailing on its next cruise, Carnival Cruise Line said Monday. Terrified passengers on the Carnival Sunshine took to social media to post video of water pouring through a flooded hallway on a cabin level and pictures of onboard stores and shambles with merchandise thrown about on the floor as large waves swelled on the sea. Passenger Daniel Taylor said the crew left us blind, not reassuring us what was going on, where we were heading to, what the plan was, WCIV-TV reported. The Carnival Sunshine's return to Charleston, South Carolina from the Bahamas on Saturday was delayed by prolonged bad weather and rough seas in the area. The Miami-based company said in a statement to the Associated Press on Monday. The vessel's next cruise scheduled to leave Charleston this weekend was delayed, but is now sailing, the statement said. And one more brief one here. Uh, it's about El Salvador, San Salvador. A judge sentenced former El Salvador President Mauricio Funes to 14 years in prison Monday for negotiating with gangs during his administration. Funes' trial began in April with the former leader living in Nicaragua. El Salvador changed its laws last year to allow trials in absentia. Prosecutors had accused Funes of, F-U-N-E-S, I believe it's Funes, of illicit association and failure to perform his duties for the gang truce negotiated in 2012. Funes had denied negotiating with the gangs. And... I think that'll just about do it, and we'll go right over to Dear Abby. Uh, just prior to Dear Abby, I just want to let our listeners know today's a great example of why on Thursday the Des Moines Register, Monday through Friday, the Des Moines Register will only be from 9 to 11. There's just nothing here. Looking at the front page of the Iowa Life section, literally five-sixths of the page is taken up with a giant photograph slash graphic of donuts. Then in the center is a three paragraph article about how donut land is coming to Urbandale. Um, there'll be a new donut land at, uh, 100th and, um, right by the quick star off the interstate at the 100th street exit. That's it. But most of the page is a big graphic of a donut 
And then there's a little article at the bottom, Olive Garden opens third area location on the south side. This is the third time I've seen this article in this paper. So we're going to shrink the register to give you more bang for your buck. You're not going to miss a thing. But dear Abby, um, I got engaged five months ago and my wedding date is seven months from now. My soon-to-be sister-in-law and bridesmaid has just announced that she's pregnant with her second child, and she's due a week after our wedding. I have conflicting emotions. While I'm happy for her family to grow, I cannot help but worry that it will detract from my fiancé and me. I'm not sure what to do. Do I keep her as a bridesmaid one week away from delivery? She might be late, but there's also a chance she could go into labor before or during our wedding. Can I replace her so she won't have to worry about the what-ifs? If her husband is a groomsman, so this decision will affect everyone. Or her husband is a groomsman, so this affects everyone. Should I leave her in and chance it? It breaks my heart to think they might not be able to attend at all. I'm so overwhelmed, and this is adding to the stress of planning my wedding. Please give me some advice. Signed, Worried Bride-to-Be. Abby writes, Dear Worried, talk about your... Talk... Talk to your about-to-be sister-in-law. It would be difficult to impossible to fit a bridesmaid's dress on someone whose girth is growing constantly. Add that to the possibility that she might not be able to attend the wedding because of an early arrival, and you wouldn't be normal if you were not concerned. Offer her the opportunity to fill another role during the ceremony, perform a reading perhaps. Then be sure to have a backup for her. To do this would not be an insult. It might save your sanity as the big day for each of you approaches. And dear Abby, I have four nieces with families who live near me. I see none of them on holidays. I'm never invited to spend time with them. They have children who have children, and I understand that they would be involved with each other. We email and keep in contact on Facebook. They know my house is off limits because my partner is a hoarder and there is no room. I hint to them in cards. Hope to see you over the holidays or would love to see your great grandbabies. The oldest is three years old and I haven't seen all four of them since they were born. My partner is a transgender woman, and I am, but I am assured that this does not bother them. I miss them and I feel left out of the family even though we email. I am their deceased father's only sibling left. Should I be more aggressive or just stop trying? I have other nieces and nephews who live far away, and they're more interested in me as a human being and an aunt. They say they would like to be with me and love me. This is signed Excluded in New York. And dear Excluded, it should be apparent that those nieces are ignoring your hints. Could you visit with them in a public place, which is neither your house or theirs? It's worth asking. But if they don't take you up on it, Please concentrate your efforts on those relatives who do treat you with warmth and caring that you deserve. It's time for weather. It was nice coming in here today. Nice little breeze. Seven-day forecast for Des Moines. High today, 86. Low, 66. A little bit of wind. And uh, that's about it for the rest of the week. It's up in the 80s and 90s. It's going to get warm. But it was a nice day, and it should be a good day. I hope it is for you. And that concludes the reading of the Des Moines Register for today, Tuesday, May the 30th. I'm Doug Kretzinger. My partner at the other microphone has been Mary Francis. Earlier, you heard who? Dale? Oh, you heard Dale? Uh, no, you heard uh, Deanna Snyder and um, Nick, the new, new guy. 
You can access Iris programs on any computer, smartphone, mobile device, or smart speaker with the Amazon Echo or Google Home. If you'd like to learn more, just give us a call, 243-6833, toll-free 1-877-404-4747, or check out our website, iowaradioreading.org. A special thanks to our broadcast partners, Iowa Public Radio, Iowa PBS, and our music partner, bensound.com. Most of all, thank you for listening to your IRS. Iowa's first and only radio reading service.